my guest today, went from the stress of having multiple miscarriages to simultaneously navigating life with a new foster son and a successful pregnancy. Find out how she and her husband navigated that situation and what she wishes she learned more about in her foster parent training when we talk to Catherine on this episode of Adoption Uncovered. Just tell me your name. We can start there. I'm Catherine. I am 47 year old mom of two. Um, my oldest is adopted. Um, he's 13 and I have, um, a biological daughter who is 12. She's 11 and a half months younger than my son. Oh man. When did adopting like first occur to you that that was something that you might want to do? I think it was something, and, and my husband would say this too. I think it was something that was sort of always in the back of my mind. I mean, I, my intention was to have kids biologically and also mm-hmm. to potentially adopt. Um, and then I had several miscarriages um, back to back in my early thirties. Well, I had my first at 30 and, um, I soon after the second one, um, the point is I started feeling like, okay, maybe this isn't going to happen biologically. And I was feeling a little bit lost. I had had another miscarriage and I just happened to be lying on the couch one day and saw information about adopting from China. And my husband came home from work and I was like, let's adopt from China. <laughs> wow. And he was so, like, yes, let's do it. I, yeah. I think um, <laughs> I, you know, the whole one child policy um, at that time was uh, resulting in lots of girls, lots of infant girls being abandoned And so I think that just really spoke to me. It was something that, um, you know, really affected me um, on a a pretty deep level. And I thought, like, there's all these babies, like, let's just do this. And so we started the process right away, actually. China's one-child policy had been active in China for over 20 years by the time Catherine and her husband felt that adopting from that country was the right thing to do. The Chinese government imposed stiff fines on families who decided to have more than one child in the country. And yet culture, especially in rural areas, dictated that only a male child would care for parents in old age and be able to manage their estate. Women typically went to live with their husband's family in their house. This meant that some families would abandon or kill their baby daughters so they could have another chance for a son. If an abandoned baby was found, that child could be offered for adoption. Then, in 2007, China implemented new rules that drastically slowed the international adoption process and limited who could adopt and which children could be adopted. Catherine and her husband couldn't have imagined how this policy would affect them when they began their process. So let's just get the ball rolling with adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, we actually um, began an adoption process, an international adoption process with China. Um, 
And when we began that process, we were under the impression it would be about an 18 month process. Oh my gosh. Um, over the course of just time, it, it would have mm. ultimately been six years. Oh my um, gosh. That is long. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple years into it, I think, um, we kind of saw the writing on the wall and, um, we decided we would become foster parents. Um, mm-hmm. And so we did that training um, in the spring of 2007. Um, and we were, I think, officially certified by the fall. Um, and we got our first call in March, uh, the following March, 2008. Um, and the rest is history. So a lot of people don't even know about the training and what that can be like. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been, you know, 14 going on 15 years ago now. So Mm -hmm. it's a little fuzzy, Yeah. but I remember that, um, I thought the training was good. I had actually done some parenting classes with our China adoption process. Um, so that's really all I had to compare it to. I don't know, was it 12 weeks, something like that, like one evening a week. They wanted people to take sibling groups. Um, and I thought, you know, that was like really pro-child. And so I, I felt good about that. I mean, I, I didn't, that really wasn't my intention. I was going to be a first-time mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I understood, um, that that was important. I also recall, um, doing some work around race in hindsight, it wasn't enough. Um, but I remember being glad that there was, you know, talk about what it means to adopt transracially. We had already done some of that with our, our waiting process with China, but, um, but we were open to any race. So we, um, you know, that was important to do, you know, more education around that piece. Um, and then one thing I remember is being told, you know, the goal is reunification. However, we want you to be fully invested in the children that, you foster. So it's like, we don't know it's going to happen, but regardless, we want you to put your whole heart and soul into this parenting thing. And so we had every intention of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my hope was that we would be able to adopt, but I also understood like the goal is reunification. Right. Um, and so it's kind of a weird place as a foster parent who wants to adopt. It's kind of a weird place to be. Um, because we wanted to be parents. Like that was our main goal. Um, and again, it was our, it was going to be our first. So, um, so those are some things I remember from that period. And then I remember that I, it was a little frustrating toward the end when we were waiting to be certified. Cause there was just like, like paperwork challenges, <laughs> like, oh, you no. know, it, it just maybe getting lost or like, I don't remember. I just remember being frustrated in the end, but 
ultimately we were certified, you know, the same year we did the training. So it probably in the grand scheme of things was not that long a process, but for us, it felt like it. Yeah. Oh, and because paperwork snafus are just part of the process. So yeah. once you get the hang of that, then it's easy to handle the rest of it, right? Right. When you've done your training, jumped through the hoops and waited, your first placement day can be an event to remember. It was probably six months before we got our first call, um, maybe not even. Um, and we got to the point there that we started thinking, is this just, is this just not going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of the blue, like, we got the call. So what I, I'd love to know, like, what was that day like? Like, you got the call. And, oh and do you remember? <laughs> like, is it one of those moments where I remember was where I was at that moment? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So we were both at work. Um, I was working for a solar energy and energy efficiency company at the time. I had already told them that we were planning to foster and that once we became foster parents, once we brought a child home, that I was going to stop working. And they were great. They were like, we're flexible. You know, we love having you. We get it. Um, So (laughs) it was like the afternoon. It was in the afternoon. I think. The person who does the calling had tried to call me first, didn't get me. So called Chris. Anyway, she eventually got both of us. Um, We talked um, individually, you know, just with one another Mm -hmm. about whether we were going to do it. And I think at first we were just so stunned because by this point, I had my first miscarriage in 2004 and this was 2008. So we had started feeling like, is it ever going to happen? Are we ever going to get to be parents? Right. Um, Right. And so we just, we're stunned and we were like, do we do it? (laughs) I remember calling my sister and she was like, go get that baby. And so anyway, Chris and I, um, you know, made the decision. Okay. Yes. We're going to do this. And of course we had to give them a pretty quick answer. Right. They called the next family. Um, mm-hmm. so I, you know, said my goodbyes to my work folks and <laughs> I had to drive down I 40. It was raining. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, um, I met my husband at our house. We already had, of course, we had the infant seed and and some other things already prepared uh, because we had actually said we would like to be matched with an infant if, you know, right. Infant comes into care. We we would like to be considered. And um, so anyway, we, we met at home, we got the things we needed and we, we arrived at the hospital. Um, we forgot the seat. And so, oh no. So I got up to the floor to the, you know, delivery, the baby ward. I don't, I don't know what it's called. Um, and yes, thank you. And, um, we were like checking in or whatever. And Chris said, Oh, the car seat. So he had to go back to the car and get it. So I ended up meeting Kayla by myself. Um, so yeah. Um, so I got to see him first and hold him and 
and um, and then my husband came in and we fed him while we were there. It really didn't take very long. I mean, I think we were probably there an hour max. Um, yeah. and, then, and then we had a baby in the car oh. that we were driving home and t- taking pictures. And <laughs> oh, I bet. As memorable as that first day was, It didn't take long for Catherine and her family to hit some rocky times navigating the system. I know you had to deal with a different, a lot of different social workers and people like that. Do you have any that like, did you have any that really came through for you and were really helpful? Do you have any stories like that or any that were really kind of stood in the way? Yeah. So, um, we, this was a Friday, um, when we got the call and, and, and brought our son home, um, and based on the information we were given, we were, we had the impression that this was a child that didn't have anywhere else to go. So we really, right from the get-go thought, he's going to be with us for a long time. Um, and whether or not we were able to adopt him is an unknown, but we, we really felt like this is for a long time. Right. So, um, so this was a Friday on Monday, we were told that they might be coming to pick him up. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and we, we took all your pictures and now what are you going to do? We were devastated. Right. And, and right then and there, I knew I can't, I, 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 I won't be able to do this again. Like it was too hard already I mean we were already attached I mean it right me I mean I've you know I'm an adoptive mom and also I I gave birth Mm -hmm. and really I mean I went through the same you know feelings of attachment right away with both um you know that deep love and and so anyway um so long story short, we like packed everything up and we're preparing. And the, the issue, it was a it was a jurisdiction issue. Like birth mom was from a different county, had the baby in our county. And so we were really turned off by the fact that um, this child had already suffered a deep trauma. The worst, you know, primal losses is, is deep trauma. And we were there. I mean, we, we had him like, why not just leave him be? And so we, um, let our thoughts and feelings be known and we got in a little bit of trouble. (laughs) Right. And so we got called into a meeting, like not knowing that we were in trouble, and um, there was a social worker who would turn out to be his worker for the long haul. Um, and her boss, who really like stood up for us, like they understood, you know, our feelings and um, didn't feel like because because it basically they were saying, well, you guys are too like emotional about this and they didn't say that in those words but that was kind of right. just that so we're gonna have to move him somewhere else in our county like not even to the other county and we were like 
you have got to be kidding me. We were just advocating for him. Like we thought we, we were just advocating. So, So anyway, the worker who became his, his social worker, um, and her boss really, you know, spoke up for us and said, I think that, that they can do this and, um, they're going to be good foster parents to this baby. And so that was that. And then we kept our mouths shut, mouths shut going forward. Right. You, you learned your lesson at that point, right? I did. I did. Um, Yeah. So I, but I, I remember feeling so confused because like I said, in that training, it was put your whole heart and soul into this process. Be, you know, the child's parents love this child. And so we had brought, we had done that right away. Like we fall in love right away. And it was our first and we had been waiting a long time. And then, you know, for us to like do what, I think any parent would do, which is say, Hey, I don't think this would be good for this baby. Like, right. and to kind of be, you know, slapped on the wrist for that, that was confusing and difficult. But like I said, um, there were two folks in that room of many <laughs> that was also like really right. intimidating that came through for us. So, and then within six months, we started being told, um, that more than likely we'd be able to adopt. It was a rough six months just because there was so many unknowns. Um, and two months in, I got pregnant. Oh <laughs> and my goodness. So I was also dealing with, you know, morning sickness and all of that. In addition to having a baby, um, Right, And just the worry about having another miscarriage and potentially losing the baby we were fostering too. It was, it was just a very stressful, heart-wrenching time, but at the same time, we treasured every moment. So you were able to walk that line that was like being in the moment and appreciating it, but then also being really stressed out. You figured that out for yourself then. Yeah. 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 Finding that balance between holding on and letting go. Catherine's adoption of her son finally became official, and she also gave birth to a daughter. As time went on, her son struggled to regulate his emotions and focus, making school tricky for him. Because he was in foster care, he was followed by a little while by the county, like the developmental folks, just to make sure he was on track. And he was on track with everything. I mean, in fact... Hmm. we felt like he talked early he walked early Um, um, but as he got older um, you know we started becoming aware that everything with him was just more intense like you know Hmm. the highs were really high the lows were really low Um, and transitions were really difficult so we started um, when he was preschool age getting, we had him evaluated for the first time, first time around, they didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we took him to a neuropsychologist um, just before he started kindergarten. And she um, gave us some recommendations that we followed through on eventually. And, I, and it was a long time, actually, mm. 10 years old. Um 
he was finally diagnosed with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, I've learned a lot in the last three years um, about this. Um, there's a high percentage of kids that come into the foster care system, like between 70, 80% who were exposed to alcohol in the womb. And so there are lots and lots of undiagnosed kids out there because a lot wow. of times there's not disclosure because of the stigma. Um, right. And so this is a piece that I think is really important um, in like foster parent training. And, and maybe they're talking about it now. I wouldn't know because I've, I've not been a part of it for so long. But um, but like I said, it's very it's 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 a it's a big um, it's very common in um, foster care. So. Anyway, I've learned a lot. It's a difficult diagnosis because it's invisible, um, but it, you know, alcohol actually affects the entire brain. Um, I think, you know, back in the 80s, everybody was worried about so-called crack babies and what, you yeah. know, the impacts of that. But really what I've learned is alcohol is, is the worst. Um, and there's just not a lot of awareness about it, frankly. So, Anyway, I've, I've found some uh, organizations that are doing a lot of advocacy work. There's actually a bill in Congress right now um, to try to get some funding to raise awareness and, um, you know, just for, for more programs for people um, diagnosed with an FASD mm-hmm. and also, um, you know, for prevention and so anyway, there's a lot that, that needs to happen, but at least we finally have a better understanding. You know, he got diagnosed with a variety of things over the right. years, and ultimately we came to understand that this was his primary diagnosis and getting, you know, clear about what that means um, has, has been important. So there's that piece. And um, I mean, he's, he's doing okay now. I homeschooled him for a couple of years he was just really struggling in school, but he's been back in school the last couple of years and it's still a real challenge, but, um, but we're proud of him. He's, he's, he's hanging in there. Oh yeah. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder was only discovered in 1973. Then it was called fetal alcohol syndrome. Since that time, scientists understanding of this condition has broadened. In the U.S., we don't consider any level of alcohol consumption during pregnancy to be safe. Binge drinking, especially, is now known to cause permanent brain damage to babies in the womb whose livers haven't developed enough to filter out the alcohol mom consumes. Fetal brains that absorb the brunt of their mom's drinking pay the price later with ADHD-like symptoms and possible learning disorders. Adopted children from the U.S. and internationally as well are affected by this condition far more than previously suspected and are often misdiagnosed. FASD is not the only challenge Catherine has had to learn how to face as she raised her adopted son. I think another piece that has been um, bigger than what I anticipated was the fact that um, he's a different race from the rest of us. Um, you know, I I was trying to talk about this earlier and then I think I got sidetracked, but, um, 
I followed, I followed a blog while we were waiting parents mm-hmm. um, called Love is Not Enough. And the whole idea, and it eventually became anti-racist parenting, um, was the name of the, the blog. But the whole idea was that, you know, you can't as as parents of a different race, particularly white parents of black children. There's not enough love you can give them to help them overcome the challenges of being adopted transracially. And so that's been a hard thing to come to terms with, because I think even though we knew love is not enough, Mm -hmm. I think we still thought like, we got this, you know, like we we do everything right. It's all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And he's going to like, you know, have a strong identity and we're going to teach them all about black history. But it just like, you know, in our society, race is still a huge Mm -hmm. factor in so many ways. And he, you know, he feels different. Like he can't hide the fact that he's adopted. Right. And so like it, if when he's with us, I think he probably feels like folks are looking at him, you know, he just always feels different and feels like, I think he feels like we don't get him and which I don't think is true, but, (laughs) but he just feels like an outsider a lot. And, um, we have one nephew who's also adopted. Um, if we could have adopted more kids, we would have more kids of color. I think that could have made a difference for him because he's Mm -hmm. the only in our family, the only black child in our family. I didn't understand the challenges that go with that. You know, I can't, I can't talk to him about what to do if you get pulled over by the police when you're driving a car at 16 years old with it, with an actual understanding of what that experience is like. Right. Whereas a black parent of a black child, you know, they're sharing from right. their own wisdom and, and lived experience. Mm-hmm. So there's just, you know, there's things like that that are that are more challenging than I understood before I became right. a parent. Are there any pr- particular incidents you can think of or any situations that he has had to face and you'd have you've had to walk him through or anything like that about his race? When he was in elementary school, um, he had a, an assistant principal threatened to call the police. This child was nine years old, and what he had done was not even, I mean, it was pretty typical boy, nine-year-old boy behavior, and um the the assistant principal was bluffing but regardless what? it was traumatic obviously yeah. um it was traumatic for him and it was traumatic for us as his parents um we raised heck about it um you know told this will never happen you know we were told this will never happen again and a year later it happened again oh my Same. goodness same administrator um and this time she had a business card um, of a police officer who was also a parent that she showed him and initially she denied 
um, he, the only reason I even knew about it was because he came home and told me he came home from school. He was in fourth grade at this time. And, um, so I reached out to the principal and he told me that initially the assistant principal had denied that she had done this, you know, she'd already gotten in trouble for doing it. So anyway, um, that was traumatic <laughs> to say the least. Oh, yeah. It was the next year that I started homeschooling him. Catherine continues to advocate for her son. His FASD diagnosis has helped her understand his behavior in the classroom and at home. She wishes education about this condition that affects so many children in foster care was a regular part of the training she had received early on. If you want to find out more about FASD, you can look up information on the CDC website, or you can also look up the website of the nonprofit National Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome. You can find these links and more information about FASD on my website, adoptionuncovered.com. And thank you.